evidence and answers. Some of the most popular speakers and some of the largest churches today have embraced a new type of gospel message, the new prosperity gospel. Dean and Sarah states, American Christianity has become a generous host to this low-commitment, entertainment-driven model of ministry, and the results for the future of discipleship should cause great concern. What is the danger of this new prosperity gospel? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and Dean and Sarah will conclude their discussion on the character and danger of the new prosperity gospel. I just want to customize church the exact way I want it to be. Uh, and, if, and if I don't have that, I'll just watch one online that I like. And it's quicker. I have to drive anywhere. I can do it, you know, on Tuesday if I want, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, working out at the gym. And there's just no connection to the church or to the body. And I think it's killing us. Yeah. And, and you know, I have sympathy for the pastor sitting there saying, what do I got to do to get people in the pews? The deacon board is all over me saying, look, everyone's going to so-and-so church or whatever. And he feels, well, what then what do I have to do to bring them in here, and he feels that pressure of having to deliver messages and having to keep up with that church that seems to, you know, have all the attractions over there. And you look at many of our seminaries now, how we're defining the quote successful church, those big churches that are reaching young families. And so the pastor's got all that image in his head, and it's really affecting his messages and perhaps even his theology and the way he does ministry. Is that what you're saying? I found, yeah, for sure. I don't know how it's sustainable either. I yeah. see a lot of turnover in those type of churches when it comes to staffing yeah. because they just can't keep up. Right? And it's just always it's got to be better, 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 better. <laughs> right? Consistency is not what, ma- what, what matters. It's new experiences, better, better, better. And I just don't want to think that way about church because like, I just don't see that in the scriptures where the idea is let's make the gathering better every time. The focus of the gathering was the apostles' teachings, prayer, singing spiritual songs and hymns. It was taking the Lord's Supper together. Like, let let that be what drives us, you know, not a new experience, the pressure to always do that. And what we're having happen out of the seminaries is we're having people graduate, and they're, like, kind of walking into a firestorm because they go on staff at these churches. They've been prepared in theology, and they've been prepared in discipleship and how to teach the Old and New Testament. And that's not even being much of their job anymore. Their job is kind of running a, pro, a running organization, you know, or, or it's running a, a type of experience. Like they're kind of on the, they're almost more in the hospitality industry or more in the production industry uh, when they're not really making disciples. They're more creating experiences. And that anybody can do that. You don't need the Holy Spirit to create an experience. Disney World does that, right? I mean, I mean anybody can do that. But we want to be people that... If, we want, if our worship service is going to be a certain kind of genre and, and a certain approach, yeah, that's, that's great. Now, we do have a style. We have a way we do things. We don't think those are the things that reach and disciple people. We think it's God's Word. You know, from preaching and through being shared relationally with others and, and conversations and iron sharpening iron that makes disciples. And another thing that I worry about is that it'll, it really kind of shrinks down excellence and legitimacy to just be one kind of style. To where is you know that they just it's just kind of reserved for those that have a young hip rock band and great coffee 
and great lighting. Where I'm like, no, you can do church in terms of the gathering a lot of different ways, and it still be considered excellent and wonderful and a great time together. So I think it actually can be really arrogant, too, just how it's approached when the excellence word is thrown around and things such as that. we got a long road to climb up just to get people back to what matters the most. And that's not me just kind of throwing cliches out there. I mean, we really have to pause and go, okay, what are we really all about? How do we really view church? Why does it really matter that people come together? And maybe the fact that we were locked down from COVID-19 for a season can can allow us to think through those kind of things and prioritize what matters again. Yeah, you know, as you were speaking, I was in the heat of ministry as an associate pastor and just feeling the pressure of having to keep, as you said, doing better and better and better and keeping up with the trends and what's going on and what's going to attract people. And then I went to missions in many of these countries that I can't say where the church is really persecuted. And the churches cannot get big. They cannot be visible. Once they get about 30, they have to break off and form a, quote, new church. And I remember worshiping with them, no band, no lights, no anything. We're in a plain old warehouse or room and sing a few songs a cappella in their language. And then they have a sermon. They don't collect offering or anything because they're really poor out there. They collect food and you know, try to support the ministry that way. But the fellowship, the teaching, the worship was just absolutely incredible, maybe the best, along with when I'm in the prison and worshiping with those guys who also are singing a cappella, no lights, no band. And I really began to think, wow, you know, are we going in the wrong direction? What are we all about? Look at these guys. They're growing. They're vibrant. The ministry, the fellowship is dynamic, something I don't see in many churches in the West that have so much of the, you know, quote, uh, material advantages here. So what you're bringing up is, is really excellent, and, and we need to ask ourselves, really, what are we all about? Yeah, and the Scriptures tell us in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But the Word is not what's shaping our faith and growing our faith, and it's something that we can kind of control, right? It's something else. It's a separate element, and that can be really dangerous. The reason why the church can be vibrant in a closed country, a highly persecuted country, all the way to a prison uh, yard where the faith can be vibrant is because the word is there and prayer is there and God's people are there. You know, and, and those things are enough. And, and do we really believe that? Again, I thank God for our band and that we have the kind of music we have. I personally, I love the style. It is my preference. Right? Like, it, it is what I just consume. You know, I, I do. Uh, but I would hope that our church is not dependent on that in any way, shape, or form. Like We could change our style and our look tomorrow, and it wouldn't change who we are, I would hope. I'm not sure that's reality, but I would hope that. Yeah. Now, for people still out there thinking, well, you know, what, what, what's wrong with that message? What's really wrong? I really think you brought it home. You didn't have a chapter on this. I think it was an illustration in your book. But you really brought it home when you illustrated how the prosperity gospel has affected marriages. Because I've been experiencing this effect with friends and so many in the church all over our country. But tell us, how has this gospel affected marriages? So remember earlier in this conversation, I was talking about how the cardinal sin is is settling mm-hmm. or being ordinary. Well, how much of marriage in a good way is really ordinary, right? It's kind of you 
have your responsibilities. You go to work. You raise the kids. You get them home and get them bath or shower. They do their homework. You eat dinner together. You go to bed and you wake up and do it all again the next day. Right? Yeah. Oh, that, now, I think that's glorious. That's God's mm. design for the mm. family, right? Like the routine and the mundane yeah. are good things. Well, the routine, the mundane, and pop Christianity are bad things. And it's a bad now. – now, they think marriage is a great thing and husband and wives are great things and family is a great thing. But the mundane – so what happens is that – they're not directly saying this, but – I'll see someone uh, start to get really kind of self-consumed, usually kind of from 35 to 45 years old. Uh, they become very just kind of obsessed with their body and with their looks, uh, exterior appearance. Before long, they're posting lots of pictures of themselves and their new look and they've lost weight and these type of things. And they start quoting Bible verses out of context that are about you. They'll talk about like, God wants you to be this, that if God's for you, who can be against you? And I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and there'll be a picture of themselves looking very attractive, and I go, oh no, here it comes. And a lot of my marriage counseling starts with people who think that maybe their spouse is the example of why they've settled. And I'll sit down with them, and they won't even say anything bad about their spouse. They'll say their spouse is a great father, a great mother, a great person, you know, treats them very well, but they'll say, you know, I, I just think that we just kind of settled, and we're just sort of better off as friends, and that God has something better else out there for us. And it's mm -hmm. like, whoa, that God has a different chapter for us to write. And I'm mm -hmm. going, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said that Jesus, Jesus, when asked about divorce, turned to Genesis as historical and, and cited that design by God, one flesh, you know, relationship, uh, that no one should separate that, that that's how Jesus viewed marriage, not, oh, things have gotten kind of bland and kind of ordinary and have just gotten too routine. Maybe it's time to do something else uh, in terms of find somebody else. Because in their eyes, again, my life's ordinary. Well, who's the object of my ordinary life? Well, it's my spouse I've been married to for 20 years. Well, guess what? And now I look different. I feel different. And man, I got married pretty young. So now I think that, that God now wants me to go live my new life and be my best version of myself. And sadly, the spouses are not considered in those plans. And they, are, they justify it by believing things like God just wants me to be happy. Uh, the best is yet to come for me. And that, that's happening. It's a real thing that's happening as a result of the, of the new prosperity gospel. Yes. You know, I'm seeing that all over the place, not only when marriages just get ordinary, but when marriages hit rough times. And all marriages go through difficult times. Instead of persevering, a lot of people are saying, you know, maybe I married the wrong person. God has yep. somebody different for me. Yep. And oh, this is holding me back from living the life that God truly wants for me. Or whatever, you know. I'm. You just, you just summarized the new prosperity gospel in one sentence when it comes to marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is a life that you want for you in your dreams, right? It's kind of it's a lust of the flesh. It's a it's a, mm -hmm. a lust of the eyes, and it's all smoke and mirrors because you see somebody else out there on social media who looks like they're happier than you, and they've been through a divorce recently. Little do they talk about how hard it was and how much trauma it caused but they just seem more free and more happy online. So then they, they, you might run into them somewhere, go out go out on the night with them to go get dinner or drink or dessert, and they tell you, I never felt more like myself. I just feel so free. You know, I feel like I'm a new person. And then you go, wait a second, maybe I need that too. Mm -hmm. And there you go. Yes, and I see it time and time and time again. I'm sure you do and other pastors who are listening to this show as well. But there is a way in which we can see in a very real way how this twisted gospel 
is affecting people at the core, at the family level. It really is. Yeah. And we have to speak to it. We have to know it. I wrote the book because a lot of people want to know what it is. I want them to understand this new prosperity gospel that really is a thing, that it's not fringe, that it's mainstream, it's mainstream, and to really explain it. I want people to really get what they teach, what their churches are like, what the messaging, what the messaging is like, and then how it's affecting us, but not just negatively in terms of a critical book. The, the, the second part is I want people to see how God has something much better for us than what the new prosperity gospel has to offer. And what he has better for us is himself. It's life with him. It's a relationship with him. It's being part of his family and how it's much better than anything the new prosperity gospel has to offer. Yes, and one of the things Paul writes about in Philippians 4 that you mentioned in your book, Paul states, godliness with contentment is great gain. But one of the things that this gospel breeds is discontent. Tell us about that. Yeah, because there's never enough, right? I, I, I uh, compare it to a glass of lemonade. When you're really thirsty and you're really hot after coming in from a day in the summertime, that lemonade, when you first drink it, it is the best taste and it feels so good. And you just kind of go, ah, right? You make that noise and it's like a satisfaction noise of, of having a great drink. But what happens 30 seconds later? You're thirsty because <laughs> lemonade is more of a treat than it is a thirst quencher. And I think that's what happens is that it's just never enough. So you have that glass of lemonade, but then right away it goes away. Why? Because these things are never designed to fulfill us ultimately. And we believe these two lies, and the two lies are there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. Or I have to go around God, not to God, for all the things I'm looking for in my life. That goes back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, but what, what happens in the New Prosperity Gospel is they have to go around God, but they think they're going to him. Because mm. that's the messaging, is that God wants this for you. God wants to take your life and do this. One of the scriptures I see that God wants to take our life, make us more like Jesus, and have us be part of his mission. That's what God wants for us, and to have our eyes on the promise that is to come. Right Throughout scripture, you see God's people looking to what's to come in life, not fulfillment in the moment. It was always a land that was waiting for them, a land that was to come. You know, now for us, it's the return of Christ, right? Or also in the Old Testament, waiting on a Messiah to deliver them. Uh, for a season, it was waiting on a king. I mean, there's so many things. It was never the here and now in this moment. When people got into the here and now and only cared about that, you know what they wound up doing? Building a golden calf. That's what was happening. And then tied it to a festival to try to make it sound spiritually acceptable. Wow. And here's Aaron telling them it's okay. Mm. <laughs> like the, that, That's what happens. And I, I think that this is the modern-day version of that. Hey, you've been listening to our interview with Dean Insera, and we're talking about his book here, Getting Over Yourself, uh, The Danger of This New Prosperity Gospel here. And we've been talking here almost an hour here, and we just touched the tip of the iceberg, just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, this is one of these books that we really recommend here with Evidence and Answers. Well, Dean, in this last section of our show here, what can we do to get back on track? So we had a, a college student in our church, recently graduated, and he came into our church very, uh, I guess you could say, schooled and discipled in the new prosperity gospel. It was all he knew. He claimed to be a Christian. I believe he was, but it was the most shallow, like very experiential feeling space where it was all about, you know, kind of taking Bible verses out of context and that are all about you, you know, feeling better and being a better version of yourself, as they like to say. When he first came to our church. He was invited by a friend when he first moved to our city to go to college. He thought we were mean. Mm. The first time, we, and the reason why was because we talked about sin and repentance. It wasn't because of our tone or anything like that. It was because of the topic we were discussing. We were calling people to calling people to repent, right? That's a gospel presentation. There's mm. no gospel presentation without repentance, right? Yeah. Uh, to receive the grace of God that's available to you from turning to the world and turning mm. to Christ. And, yeah. You don't hear that message much anymore. 
which is crazy. Wow. <laughs> and what else do we have? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what's nuts. He came back, and then he, for whatever reason, and then he <laughs> actually hear what, what And I asked him, I said, what changed for you? Because now he's on fire for the Lord in a way that's based on God's revealed himself through the scriptures, not one that he's created through his manipulation from his previous churches. Uh, but he says, I just started hearing the real thing. He said, I started hearing, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I started hearing gospel centrality for the first time, and it made me go, oh my gosh, this is totally different anything I've ever heard before. Uh, so I think that we can't assume that our people are there. We can't assume the gospel. We have to make sure we're clear on it. And we also can't afraid to say, this is not what it is. We can't be scared to, to call balls and strikes, to use a baseball analogy, or to say, and we, we can't be afraid to do that. Yeah, tone matters and kindness matters, but those aren't at odds with calling balls and strikes. But we have to be able to say, this is not the scriptures. This is not what God has for us. You don't have to go around God to the things you're looking for. Uh, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions is it, not something for the Christian. <laughs> it's of the world. And, and we, we ha- I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but we've got to go there. And we've got to guard our church from some of these teachers who are so popular on podcasts, on Instagram video clips, and we can't be afraid to say, hey, look, this is not good. This is not okay. And I just think we have to kind of get back to, again, not in a mean-spirited way, uh, and not in a over, I guess you could say, over-realized discernment kind of thing, where it's all we ever do is critique. We don't want that either. Mm-hmm. We just want to make sure that we're exposing people to the real thing. And I think that's a burden that, that churches have to carry. Yeah, you know, well, speak to the pastor or Christian leaders out there who say, well, you know, Dean, if we start preaching on sin, like the minor prophets or whatever, I mean, we're going to be losing our people. We got the this budget to keep, and boy, I'm not sure we're ready to see an exit of people from our church if we start preaching repentance and sin and things like that. What do you have to say to those leaders? Well, my first hope would be they respond to it, and they believe the truth of it, you know, and they say, okay, we're, we're, we're in. You know, we're, we're hearing mm-hmm. the Bible, we're getting the Bible. That's my first hope. Uh, but after that, I mean, I think that we need to make sure that we are actually doing what we were called to do, which is to make disciples, not draw crowds. Mm-hmm. And I, I get that temptation. I totally understand that. We have a budget to, you know, we have a budget to meet. And, and I, when I walk out and see less people in chairs in a, a different week, I get bummed out a little bit. You know, I yeah. understand all those things. Mm-hmm. But the alternative then is not to, to water down the message. I'm going to answer before God uh, for what I teach. And also, here's the thing. When you mentioned the minor prophets and things like that, where do all these stories find their fulfillment? In Christ, which is incredibly good news. Right? Uh-huh. So the, the news is, how, it's while we were sinners that Christ died for us. Right? That's how we understand love consists in this, not that we love God, that he loved us. So if we really are preaching the gospel, then Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and he is the one to which there is no greater news than in him. Uh, so I think, actually, we set our folks up to understand the love of God more when we're honest about sin and God's judgment and how we've fallen short of God's glory. I think it helps us understand God's love more, understand his mercy, his compassion, uh, more than just presenting him as some sort of life coach. There's no love in that. There's no mercy in that. There's just advice, and there's just motivation. I don't need advice and motivation. I need grace. You know, <laughs> I need mercy. So I need belonging with Christ. So let's let's do that. Let's, let's give people what God's already given us, which is that good news. Yes, and what I hear you saying is that you know we need to get back to strong Bible teaching and theology and and doctrine. Yep. 
Many of these churches have little teaching when it comes to Bible exposition and theology. But the phrase you often hear is that we just need to love people and not be mean and dogmatic on theological doctrines. How do you respond to that? First of all, what do you? I always ask when people people say things like that. I say, what do you mean by that? <laughs> like, like, what do you mean by love people? Yes, we're to love people, a hundred percent. No disclaimers needed. I just want to know what you mean by that. And their definition of what it means to be loving is one shaped by the world, which means just don't say anything and just be nice and just accept everything and and don't share your views and you know just kind of that idea. And it's like, well, when I see God's love in the Bible, it's always tied to what He's doing for His people. You know, it's tied to his sacrificial love. It's tied to his perseverance with his people in terms of his grace and his patience and those type of things. It's not based on him being silent. It's not based on him avoiding things or, or just overlooking them or going, oh, they meant well, no big deal. Um, so God, if your definition of loving is in contradiction to God's holiness, maybe you need a new definition. And I like to say that, you know, Jesus told us what the most important commandments were. He actually ranked them. He said, okay, I'll answer your question. The most important commandment is to love God. That's number one. And number two, so you rank them, like first and second, as in they're not on the same playing field, is to love your neighbor. So both those are really important that Jesus singled them out as critical for us. And he really summarized the whole law and the prophets, he said, by saying those things. So here's what I know about that. If we're to love God, we're told we need to obey him. We need to take him at his word. We need to obey his commandments. So I'm never, ever you know, keeping the second commandment to love my neighbor if it calls me and causes me to violate the first commandment. So when I affirm things that God denies, I am not loving my neighbor. So I don't want to ever be guilty of violating the first commandment by thinking I'm keeping the second. And what's happening is we have reversed them, and we think that the most important commandment is to love our neighbor, but we're defining that by how the world dictates for us what love looks like rather than by what Scripture says it means to love our neighbor, which ultimately is to love their soul, point them to Christ. And you gave a great example in your book, I believe, of a person involved in the gay lifestyle, how I guess they were at your church and they didn't like the stance on homosexuality, so they went to another church where they felt the pastor was very accepting of the gay lifestyle. But the truth of the matter is he wasn't. But he would never mention it from the pulpit because he didn't want to turn away people. Exactly. He didn't want to be unpopular. He didn't want to be unliked. And that's the gateway to be unliked nowadays is to have, you know, actual convictions about God's design for men and women. So here's a guy who actually stands with God's design in terms of his convictions and beliefs, doesn't talk about it because he's afraid it might lose people. And that's what happens in pragmatism. When everything is in the context of growing and keeping people and what works and what doesn't, you're not going to do anything you think could violate or hurt that. Yeah. So that, that, that's a real thing. So what we're seeing now is, now the churches that are just completely theologically liberal are all, they're dying, right? Yeah. They're dying. Uh-huh. But what we're seeing growing right now, which is interesting, are churches that I, I call them theologically agnostic. Uh-huh. Yeah. You just don't really know what they believe. But I don't think the shelf life, I think it's a fad, and I don't think the shelf life is too long. Because how do you sustain the changes that are happening in our world? How do you sustain it when all, when all your messaging is just kind of self-help positivity? It, it's just not going to work. So it's actually going to be reverse pragmatism. <laughs> little, little little do they know. Wow. Man, just this uh, one hour went by so quickly with Pastor Dean here. But as we bring this to an end, Dean, is there any, you know, one last message you want to give to folks out there regarding this new prosperity gospel message? 
more are drawn to it than you might realize, and a lot of pastors especially aren't aware of it because we're all just kind of insulated in our own tribes. Yeah. So we just might know that it's a problem, but don't realize how many of our own people actually listen to the podcast, following them on Instagram. We have to speak to it. Be unafraid to speak to it is my charge to everyone. And hopefully the book will help you think through it, learn more about it, so you can actually speak to it with some knowledge. And also what we have that's better. That's life with God. Yeah, so you've been listening to our interview with Dean in Sarah. Great book that we're promoting here on Evidence and Answers, Getting Over Yourself, The Danger of This New Prosperity Gospel here. Well, Dean, if people want more information on you and the things we've talked about, where can they go to get more information? Well, the pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, which is citychurchtallahassee.com. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, which is my name, Dean and Sarah. My last name is I-N-S-E-R-R-A. And uh, I have several books that you can find online that I've written over the past few years and uh, would love you to engage in those. I'd be really grateful. That's been great. So it's been a great interview here. Dean and Sarah, founding and lead pastor of City Church there in Tallahassee, Florida. So, Dean, thanks for being a guest with us. Thanks for writing this great book. Thanks for being with us on Evidence and Answers. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a a treat. Thank you. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. So for the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.